Hello and welcome to another episode of Talk Eastern Europe, a podcast dedicated to Central and Eastern Europe and the official podcast of the new Eastern Europe magazine. This is episode 129. My name is Agnieszka Widłaszewska and with me is the other co-host of the podcast, Adam Reichardt. Hello, Adam. Hello, Aga. Hello, listeners. It is good to be back this week with another episode and another tricky topic. Last week, we also discussed some pretty serious topics related to the anniversary of the Russian full-scale invasion of Ukraine. But before we get to the, into that and some other news from this week and last week, I put down in my notes for the show that I need to say my disclaimer in the very beginning because I always forget about it. So here it goes. Just bear in mind that nothing I say on this lovely podcast, intelligent or otherwise, funny or otherwise, does not represent the interests and opinions of the institution that I work for. So with that, uh, we can move on to more interesting topics. <laughs> and so, yeah, well, last week, I think it was all pretty much about the one year anniversary of the Russian full-scale invasion. And we definitely recommend that you listen to our episode on that. We published it last Friday, and it was our interview with Maria Avdeva, who before the war used to be an expert and an analyst. And then the war sort of forced her to become a wartime journalist who reports every day from her hometown of Kharkiv, but also from other areas in Ukraine and from the front lines. And so we were very happy that she joined us to talk about her experience of the past year. Yeah, I think it was one of one of those podcasts that I'm not going to forget for quite some time. It was very interesting, but at the same time emotional to hear Mar some of Maria's stories and experiences. And she never thought that she would experience in her life uh, some of those things that she has, including, you know, going to newly deoccupied areas uh, that were just deoccupied de literally right before she showed up. So she has seen, you know, has witnessed a lot of this horrible war and uh, and a lot of the tragedies. Uh, but at the same time, she does also give some of the positives, uh, you know, changes in her life. Uh, and she's she has uh, really done an amazing job and amazing work uh, reporting from Kharkiv. And I, it was I was also very pleased and 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 happy that she she joined us. So do check out that uh, episode. Uh, if you have not yet uh, listened to it. And as you said, Aga, I do think, yeah, the most of the news that has been uh, about the region over the last week or so has mostly been uh, focused on uh, the one-year anniversary, a lot of uh, discussions and debates about what's next, what could happen next. Uh, and I would say probably that there are no conclusions, uh, no solid conclusions, at least, of what, what could happen next. I think a lot of people have a lot of ideas. There are plenty of scenarios out there. I certainly have some of my own thoughts on what could happen next and what might happen next, uh, but maybe we can leave those for another time. But there's uh, some other news in the region I think that we, we need to look at. Uh, one of those uh, countries that, uh, that also made news over the last uh, week or two is the main, uh, main country in focus of this episode, and that is Moldova. Uh, and we will get to that in a moment. But there is also a very important development taking place in Georgia, in the South Caucasus, uh, and some controversial and some would say even scandalous developments. And I know, Aga, you've been following that. So maybe you could give us a little bit of update on uh, on the latest there. Sure. So, yeah, the topic that has been making headlines in Georgia recently is the current proposal to introduce what has been dubbed a foreign agent law in Georgia. 
And essentially, this law would mark all non-governmental organizations and media outlets which receive more than 20% of their funding from abroad as, quote-unquote, agents of foreign influence. So naturally, comparisons have been made to a similar law that was introduced in Russia, and this law was progressively made more and more strict, and it has led to essentially the wiping out of independent media in Russia and also a lot of NGOs have suffered from it as yeah. well. So essentially many media organizations in Georgia are, you know, are strongly alarmed by this development. And there has been a number of publications, for example, just today I was looking at OC Media, which published an editorial on the topic. It's OC Media, in case your listeners don't know, it's one of the main English language sources on Georgia. So I, I would actually recommend. Yeah, on the wider you... caucuses. Yeah, actually. Yeah, yeah. On, on the caucuses, yeah. but yeah, yeah oh, so including Georgia. So Absolutely. I would definitely recommend you to check it out in case you're looking for news specifically on the region. And so they actually, there's a joint statement by, I think they said 64 media organizations that have said that even if this law will be basically approved and then implemented, that they will refuse to register themselves as agents of foreign influence because it offends their quote-unquote professional dignity. That's what they say. And so they will essentially fight it, even though the proposed punishments include heavy fines or even in some recent new draft of this law, there might be also uh, prison sentences for those who who failed to register themselves as these agents of foreign influence. So, of course, this is a pretty serious development, and the EU has also reacted to these developments in a truly EU fashion. So they said it raised serious concerns, <laughs> the, the proposal for the law. But they also stressed there was a statement from the European External Action Service where it was stressed that this proposal goes directly against Georgia's EU aspirations and yes. some of the priorities that Georgia needs to fulfill before it can be granted EU candidate status. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think this if this law passes, that's the end of the end of the the EU path for the moment, at least. And I wonder, you know, if the pressure will be enough to to stop this from happening. And I really hope it does, because this is a very worrying development for Georgia. Uh, since since February 24th, 2022, it has been kind of teetering in the wrong direction. And this would really be a, a, a big push in the wrong direction. So let's hope that that it does not go uh, it does not pass and that the this so-called foreign agent law will be will be abandoned. I was giving a, a comments. Uh, I was invited to speak on a panel last week, uh, which was organized by the Georgian Foundation for Strategic and International Security about uh, Ukraine's uh, the one year anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. But at the end of the conference, it was kind of a hybrid conference. So I was online, but there were also people in, in person. And the, at the end of the conference, the, the the moderator said, "You know, thank you for coming for our conference." This may be the last time that we organize it because if this law passes, we won't be able to exist anymore. So this is quite, you know, this is really serious, and uh, and it uh, would end not just media, free media would also end, as you said, uh, a lot of civil society, which is very vibrant in Georgia, and it is dependent on a lot of uh, support from you know European Union and from from other Western institutions, uh, and this could really basically uh, change the entire landscape. 
And with that uh, less optimistic assessment of what's happening in Georgia, we can now move to our other country, which we're covering today, and that's the country of Moldova. Uh, of course, things are also uh, tense there, I would say. However, you know, politically is uh, is is you know, strongly pro-European. Uh, there's been some developments. There's been a, a changeover of prime ministers and a new government recently in Moldova, but it's the same ruling party which is in power, uh, and uh, President Maya Sandu, who is uh, who is basically leading the country at the moment, ha- is a very strong pro-European politician. So there's uh, there's that. But regarding uh, the fact that Moldova is in the news, it's largely related to uh, some intelligence reports which were uncovered, uh, first announced by actually President Zelensky uh, from Ukraine, but later confirmed by Maya Sandu and other intelligence agencies that uh, Russia is very interested in creating some stability in the country of Moldova. There's uh, a scenario where they are looking to create protests and some unrest and actually add in some Russian agents in civilian clothing to try to take over some institutions. So a very worrying sign uh, that that Russia is interested in uh, in creating instability and trying to um, take Moldova off this pro-European path, which we see seems to be working in Georgia, as we just mentioned. Uh, and uh, and that's the main uh, main topic of our discussion today. Yeah, I think it's important to come back to Moldova on our podcast. I think we haven't had a an episode dedicated to Moldova specifically in quite some time, but we can see that even though, let's say, in the beginning of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, there were big concerns that this invasion will quickly escalate into Moldova, let's say this scenario has now been put aside, if you will, but yeah. you can see that it doesn't mean that Russia does not no longer pays attention to Moldova. It is very much still trying to influence the political processes in the country. And I think we cannot forget about this. And particularly since the like you said, the government, the president right now in power in Moldova are pro-European, pro-Western, it does give quite some opportunities to the EU, to the Western community, to Moldova's allies, essentially, to support the country, right, and support the people of Moldova in these really quite challenging times, not only from the political point of view, but also as you as will be discussed in the interview from the economic point of view and security point of view, just basically all around difficult, difficult issues surrounding yes. Moldova and its people. So yes, yes, it's important and, to discuss and- it. Yes, absolutely. And I think a very important sign that the West is also paying attention is the fact that President Sandu was invited to Warsaw during uh, U.S. President Joe Biden's visit in uh, when he came last week. Uh, and he even recognized her during his speech, saying that the Moldovan people are also, you know, uh, in this fight and and that the, that the transatlantic alliance supports Moldova. So there's definitely both sides are paying attention to what's happening in, in this very small country but yet a very important country. As, as we have covered a lot of Moldova in the past, we've always said that it is a very important geopolitical piece on the you know the European board here. So Moldova is uh, something that we've always been paying attention to. And of course, and one last uh, element which we have to also recognize is the fact that Moldova also has its frozen conflict uh, of Transnistria, uh, which is a you know a, break- a breakaway a breakaway republic. Uh, which has uh, declared its uh, independence, but nobody recognizes. Uh, but at the same time, Russia strongly supports it and even has around 1,200, I think, 
troops placed in Transnistria, and that was, uh, especially a year ago, many people were very concerned that this, as you mentioned, could have been another part of the conflict uh, of the war in Ukraine uh, if if Russian forces from, from the east had managed to get so far to the border between uh, Transnistria and Ukraine. But that so far that has since kind of been scaled back. So now the, the question of, of Russian activity in Moldova might be more of a hybrid nature than uh, than just a flat out conflict. Indeed. So I guess with this introduction, we can slowly transition into our interview. But first, we should introduce our guest for this week. And usually it's the person who interviewed that introduces <laughs> the guest. But I think this time around, I'll take this opportunity, even though you conducted the interview, Adam, sure. because it turned out, but we only realized this after the interview, that I know the the guest and she actually was my classmate at the College of Europe during our master's course. So I didn't know that Adam was going to conduct <laughs> an interview with her. So unfortunately, I couldn't join for that. But our guest for this week is Anda Bologa, who is a Fulbright scholar and a PhD candidate at Fordham University. Uh, she is an affiliated expert with the Romanian think tank Europulse and a fellow at the Washington-based Center for European Policy Analysis. And her main research topics are transatlantic affairs, digital policy, and EU neighborhood policy. So I think she's very well qualified to talk about the the issues that you have discussed. And so I think with that, I we will we're going to move into the interview, and we hope you enjoy it. So joining me now is Anda Bologa, who is currently in New York, uh, but originally from Moldova. Anda, thank you so much for being here on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me and thank you so much for devoting time for a very important subject. And thank you for talking about what's happening in Moldova right now. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's clear that the country Moldova has always been somewhat geopolitically strategic, uh, despite its relative size, as a balancing point between East and West. Uh, it even has its own frozen conflict uh, of the breakaway Republic of Transnistria. This is something we've talked about in the past also on the podcast. But certainly, I think uh, Moldova's importance has grown quite a bit with the onset of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, which is already in one year. So maybe we can start the conversation uh, with me asking you, in your opinion, how you think the the war in Ukraine has affected uh, Moldova? How has it affected the Moldovan society, and what role does it play uh, generally in the in the, the country? That's a very good question. Yeah, Moldova has always been on the radar of international news, and usually uh, the headline was an uneasy one about the poorest country in Europe, mm. challenges for for democracy in Moldova, and. Definitely, we faced protests for a number of years. And finally, in the summer of 2021, we had elections that were democratically held and uh, we had a new government and a lot, a lot of hope for change and for reforms and for reforms that would feel at the level of a regular citizen. Mm. That was a good, tentatively hopeful year for Moldova. And 2022 started well until February, yeah. um, when the conflict erupted right at the border. And Moldova is actually the country that has the highest number of refugees per capita. Mm. And we, we've seen an, an immense influx of people that just arrived by car or just crossing the border uh, as they could. And it was the, the international headlines were mentioning Moldova 
um, maybe in a, with a note of su surprise that uh, the poorest country in Europe, but with a big heart. And definitely the population understood that they have to, to step up and they have to help. And we had a number of platforms that were very involved, but this uh, affected the situation in, in so many ways. First of all, economically, yeah, the, the situation was extremely challenging from a security point of view. And especially at the beginning of the war, when there was a, a, a real risk that Moldova might be next oh. uh, in the upper month. And we are very grateful to the Ukrainians that are very brave and they don't only fight for, for keeping Ukraine independent, but they are protecting Moldova and the entire region. And that affected the economy that, of course, uh, stopped the reforms that were implemented in the sense that uh, new emerging priorities were on the top of the list. And that brought a huge challenge in what concerns Moldova's energetic dependency on, on Russia. And the government had to be very creative and under immense pressure had to look for other ways to find other energy sources. Um, it also was a very challenging balancing act between Moldova's pro-Western inspirational uh, messages and yeah. generally uh, European integration was at the core of the new government. But then with the war to your border, Moldova had to perform a very, very sensitive and very challenging balancing act. So 2022 brought a lot of challenges for Moldova um, and uh, for, for a country that is so small and, and definitely uh, not in great economic shape, it's yeah. almost a miracle that uh, things are still going well and the country is resilient. But definitely that's a positive outcome that was uh, made possible by the government and by Moldova citizens that understood that they have to be resilient. Yeah, absolutely. I, I want to get into some of those points which you brought up. I think there are a lot of issues that have emerged, I think, in the last 12 months or so, as, as you mentioned, uh, some very important challenges, but some positive news. I think I really like how you uh, characterize that Moldova, like the poorest country in Europe with the biggest heart. How many, is there still a large population of Ukrainian refugees in Moldova right now? Do you think? Do you know? Definitely, yeah. yes. So at the beginning, Moldova was just the first stop right. for many Ukrainians that flew the war, but many stayed. And it's still the, the ratio to local population is, is pretty high. And that, of course, puts a lot of pressure on Moldova's already fragile institutions in terms of yeah. starting from healthcare services, education, and, and generally that uh, impacted the economic development. And at the same time, Moldova lost uh, its markets, very important markets to Russia, to Ukraine, uh, uh, to Belarus in terms of uh, economic cooperation. Wow. Um, but at the same time, uh, <laughs> my home city of Chisinau became more diverse. And it's, it's really um, endearing to hear Ukrainian language very often. And I, I am really proud of the fact that people really understood the necessity to be accommodating of the of the refugees, um, and and so far uh, the situation has been really peaceful and uh, with as little challenges as possible. Mm. Yeah, we have you know similar situation of course here in Poland. Uh, we have you know uh, I think uh, well over a million who had stayed uh, since uh, since last year, uh, if not more. 
plus the Ukrainian population, which was already here. And But we do see some uh, propaganda and disinformation messages trying to get into the society, which is saying that, you know, the, the Ukrainians will take the healthcare services away from Polish people. The uh, Polish government will be giving, you know, handouts to Ukrainians. Uh, the Ukrainians will be taking Polish jobs. Not really very effective because Polish are pretty pro-Ukrainian in general. Uh, do you see similar uh, similar trends in, in Moldova as well? I think this is part of a larger problem with disinformation oh. uh, that Moldova is facing. And in terms of how it's being attacked right now, even if there is no military uh, imminent threat, uh, Moldova is facing a lot of disinformation that comes from Russia and is, is facing a wave of fake news, different types of cyber attacks, phishing attacks, and so on. And many of them, of course, involve the situation uh, of having Ukrainian refugees on Moldovan territory. Um, and as I've been mentioning at the beginning, we had a lot of protests yeah. uh, in the previous years. So one way to destabilize the situation is to use the method of protests and to mobilize people um, by just paying them and organizing them and staging these protests and steering opposition in in different cities and especially in Kishino. Yeah. Um, and capitalizing on, on people's general discontent, which is very understandable. There was a recent study in which people um, that on the first the first thing that they uh, were most discontent with was the economic situation. And then only on the second they mentioned the war as the second on the second place. So hmm. definitely um, Moldova had to face 30 percent of uh, inflation. Yeah, uh, which is already very, very difficult considering the previous economic situation. So people felt very, very soon the impact of the war um, in in their household. In in this context, it the public opinion is very fragile to disinformation, and definitely uh, refugees are just one of the stories that are being mm -hmm. for this. Yeah, we'll get uh, to this uh, kind of more political, internal political situation in a moment, because I do think it's uh, critical, especially as we're recording today. I think there are protests in Chisinau, uh, but we'll come back to that because there's one positive that I want to mention and ask you about. And that's a, that relates to Moldova's, the development that um, that both Moldova and Ukraine, uh, I think it was in, in June, has since received the, the EU candidate status. Uh, what do you think that this means for Moldova? And what are what are the main challenges, I think, that, that Moldova faces in its European path? Mm, first of all, that's a very, very good positive development for Moldova. Uh -huh. And it signal both on the um, international geopolitical scene that confirms Moldova's pro-Western aspirations. And, and as I said, the European integration is at the core of the the government. Yeah. But at the same time, uh, Moldova is facing so many internal challenges, not to forget about corruption. And speaking of uh, negative headlines that the country got in, in the previous decade, um, I'm sure that many listeners uh, might remember the a big theft that happened in uh, the the banking system and yep. that was almost 12% of Moldova's GDP so Moldova is still trying to build resilient transparent institutions 
is is fighting corruption and uh, it has the Transnistrian frozen conflict. So while this is a very, very positive aspirational development, it's also important to understand that uh, it's a long path mm-hmm. to, to actually becoming a EU member state. And I think in here there is a very sensitive challenge to the population in the sense that majority of people are have no political studies and they cannot... Uh, necessarily have a very cold-hearted uh, political analysis when they think about those things. They elected the government because they made up a, a large part of the population made up their minds and they said, okay, we want to be part of Europe. And somehow they have the expectations that this will happen very soon or there will be, it will be on a clear path. And this is simply how not <laughs> things are are happening. Yeah. Um, so there is a, a a challenge in here in the sense that the the level of discontent with the government of of the population has to be managed very carefully, and um, it's very important for the government not to overpromise, uh, which they are not. But then the communication. Um, that is done uh, from from the government to to the people is really really important in this sense. Yeah, it's uh, it's a long process. It's a long road. Of course, I think uh, for for people who are especially experiencing harsh conditions like thirty percent inflation, uh, they're looking for answers and uh, assistance anywhere they can. How does it look like the political situation internally? Because we recently read about uh, the resignation of the previous prime minister. There is now a new prime minister in power. Uh, Dorin Resian is the new prime minister, has a new government. Um, But we understand that, you know, this is from the same party, uh, which is pro-EU and Uh, pro-West. How should we understand this political change? Is this just an internal situation or uh, is there uh, some deeper reasons behind uh, behind these changes? What's your assessment? So we have a new prime minister and a new government, but then uh, the core agenda stays the same. Mm -hmm. Uh, The priorities stay the same. And as our listeners could infer by now, the the Moldova citizens are really... having using their their last powers to, to to be resilient in this context so a new change uh, and a new government might be the right emblem for them to to continue on this path so mm-hmm. um, it, it's a good opportunity to reassess different reforms that have been done so far different priorities in terms of the way institutions work and this is very much connected with, you know, the the broader goal of becoming part of the EU and ensuring that institutions function function well and are transparent, that the resilience is built, uh, and that uh, there is a uh, strong connections between the public institutions and and citizens' needs. So, in many ways, this new government tries to answer maybe better and bring a new wave of optimism and a new perspective in this very challenging situation, but it's not in any way a detour from what Moldova has mm-hmm. always said um, in, since the, the last elections that it wants to accomplish, namely to be part of, of the European community and just uh, continue on its path and definitely work on on increasing citizens' level of uh, life and general economic situation. And, and how do you assess? I mean, have have things improved? I mean, of course, we have to take try to take Moldova out of the context that it's next to a country that's at war. 
but uh, and of course you know has been affected by it itself but if we look at just the uh, the period uh, as you said i think it was 2021 when this government came into power uh, and then later came Maya Sandu as president how do you do you do you think like if we look at just objectively things have improved for moldovans how to understand it <sighs> So if we look at the numbers, uh, then we risk to be very pessimistic in answering this hey. question um, hey. because not only we faced the 30% inflation that, of course, affected a lot of other very important economic indicators, but al also most primarily citizens' level of life and what they can afford and how they feel about it. But also with this new government, new social institutions and general social measures have been uh, put into play, uh, which is a very optimistic and a good development in terms of, yes, uh, Moldova is facing uh, a very, very difficult energy crisis. But then this government managed to put in place a system of aid for the most vulnerable category people mm. and help subsidize the energy costs. Um, and at the same time, there there are other programs that help the most vulnerable layers of, of society. And while all this is happening in a very dire financial situation, and there are just so many priorities, and all of them are important, and all of them require a, a part of the budget, there is uh, a positive development in that the government is well aware of this and is trying to find a balance between all these priorities. Uh -huh. And hopefully, if Moldova stays on the same trajectory, results will be seen in a couple of years. Yeah, I mean, it's a miracle that the government is actually still in power, considering uh, the challenges it's facing, uh, particularly economic challenges. Uh, and as you said, I think largely related to energy dependence on Russia, which was cut, uh, a lot of it cut uh, since, since February of last year. And you also mentioned... And we kind of referred to this briefly, but let's maybe we can talk about it a little bit more. There are plenty of people who are not satisfied with the government and are used and exploited uh, and maybe even paid in some some circumstances to protest against the government. And today, I think uh, I've read that there were protests again, and mostly driven by Elon Shore's party, uh, which I think is probably we can say is has some ties to, to Kremlin. So maybe you can talk a little bit about this uh, aspect of politics in Moldova. Uh, what kind of threat does it represent? And maybe this will also lead into our next part of the conversation, which is, you know, looking at the risks of destabilization of Moldova. So that's definitely one of the most important threats. And it, it's just very real. You have people protesting in front of the government and mm -hmm. these protests are constantly steered and financed. Uh, by opposition parties that have maybe not Moldova's best interest in, in mind, but are rather having links with Russia. And this this is part of the general hybrid threats that Moldova is facing. And that's one of the, the core things that Moldova has to do right now is to build resilience. Uh -huh. And that's this, this movement. And it's very difficult in the general economic situation facing the energy crisis and facing so much pressure on its public institutions. And it's it's difficult to keep people content with the government and in this condition. So definitely these protests are are a massive challenge. And what's behind them is is a massive challenge. And 
uh, pro-Russian forces are constantly trying to destabilize the situation. And, and those protests are just one way of doing that, especially that in Moldova, there's this protest fatigue uh, because we've been mm. witnessing them for a long time. And the party that is now in power, they have been protesting for a number of years. Right. And uh, generally, uh, this this instrument of protesting has been used so much that generally uh, it, it, it now it, uh, it led to a overall fatigue. And mm. it, it's really important for the government, as I said, to wisely communicate uh, with citizens and to use channels of power to also show that they are close to the people and they understand uh, what people are going through and, and try to make them part of this building resilience um, aspect of, uh, of governing. Mm. Yeah, I mean, earlier in February, I think it was... Uh, First is Volodymyr Zelensky, who came out and said that they had intelligence, Ukraine had intelligence that Russia was looking to destabilize Moldova, maybe even uh, enact some sort of coup. And then uh, more recently, um, Maya Sandu, the president, agreed uh, or, or confirmed this intelligence and said that the threat is real. What I mean, what what do you think about this threat? How how real is the threat? And is it uh, is it possible that uh, Moldova can you know manage to to avoid it to avoid this kind of situation, this scenario? I certainly hope it's possible for Moldova to <laughs> avoid it. Uh, yeah, but yes, the country is under immense pressure and. And given Moldova's situation, uh, the energy dependency, the very challenging economic situation, it's just very possible to, through this hybrid forces, to destabilize and to mobilize a part of the population against the government. Uh, and that's a very real threat. Um, and as I said, this has to be counterbalanced by real policies that people can feel that uh, address their most important needs. And at the same time, with a very wise and very direct communication to people about um, those policies so they can feel that the government has their best interests in mind when uh. when governing. And uh, at the same time, as I said Maybe with this new government, they will succeed building more resilience within institutions themselves. Uh, so they are able to handle both the information they get about various threats, but also to build structures that get more and more stable and are able to counter uh, the, the threats that come their way. Yeah, exactly. I think the, the, the intelligence says or points to the fact that a lot of the institutions are weak uh, in in Moldova, and this is the challenge that you know um, tried to take over some uh, parts of the government or some public institutions. That th this could quickly destabilize, and, and the country could further go down in, into um, into more destabilization, basically. Uh, but let's yeah, let's hope that you are right that there is uh, there is uh, a lot that's being done in order to build stronger resilience, and this we won't and this won't happen. Uh, there was one one aspect that we haven't yet talked about so much, and that's the breakaway region of Transnistria. And I wanted to ask you, what does the situation look like right now? Because Transnistria has traditionally been pro-Russian, you know, Russian troops uh, or forces of, at some small level have always been present on that territory. 
but I do recall that in recent months there were some uh, moves to improve relations between uh, Tiraspol, which is the the so-called capital of of the Transnistrian breakaway republic, and and Chisinau. Uh, yeah. So I I remember when I was in high school a decade ago. Um, the troops uh, in Transnistria were a very big problem, and that mm. hasn't changed. And also yeah. the negotiation process between the authorities in Chisinau and in Tiraspol hasn't progressed much since then. So that definitely gives us a, a timeline of how things are progressing. But definitely in, in the context of having a war at its border, the situation in Transnistria is very worrisome, especially mm-hmm. because there is an approximately 1,700 soldiers in there uh, and military uh, weapons and so on. So if used, that would be a, a major threat to uh, the authorities in, in Chisinau. But the negotiations are especially difficult in this context, given that uh, authorities uh, in, in Tiraspol are um, very much representing Russia's uh, agenda and, and voice in, in this negotiation. So as long as the war in Ukraine is going, there's little hope for diplomatic yeah. solution in, in this context. But it is important for authorities in Chisinau to stay strong on their position and recently there has been a new law uh, adopted so new amendments to the criminal code that punish separatism activities yeah theoretically um, citizens living in transnistria could be prosecuted and uh, sentenced to jail for those type of activities so uh, that's part of governmental agenda of showing strength and trying to increase resilience and good laws are important but then enforcement is equally as important and it's also good to see how this what what impact this has in the broader context so definitely the uh tiraspol authorities and every time i say authorities that's so-called authorities and yeah yeah yeah, of course Um, that definitely wasn't a step forward in their view towards negotiation. And there's also the uh, energetic dependency of Moldova and Transnistria plays an, an important role in there in terms of how Moldova is getting uh, its energy supply. So it's definitely a very sensitive balance as with everything else in Moldova at the moment. Yeah. But do, do you, I mean, do you think there's a risk that the conflict, uh, the war in Ukraine, could spill all at all over into Moldova. I mean, I, I'm as far as I understand, Moldova really has no forces capable of repelling any sort of attack. But uh, we have seen, you know, missiles flying over Moldova, even one or two missiles landing in Moldova. Uh, if there is some sort of escalation in in Ukraine by Russian forces, uh, do you think there's a risk to Moldova still at at this point a year in? So, um, Mircea Joana, uh, the deputy head of NATO uh, at the Munich conference, said that at the moment he doesn't see a military threat that Moldova is facing, and this is very reassuring. Oh. Um, and this has been echoed by other international officials, uh, but definitely uh, the situation is dire, and Moldova has increased its military budget, not uh, as much as if it would make an immediate change, 
to mm-hmm. capacity to defend itself. Uh, but definitely that's a step forward for Moldova to be able to build a minimal capacity of, of self-defense. And the budget allocation, will, will, we will see the results of that in a number of years, so maybe two years from now. Yeah. Uh, but still, uh, it's something that is on, on the government's priority agenda. As I said, we're very, very grateful to Ukrainians who are fighting not only for themselves, but also for uh, Moldova's independence. And as long as Russian forces are having uh, an uneasy time in, in Ukraine, there is that Russia doesn't have the necessary resources to deploy military troops in, in Moldova. Uh, but at the same time, it has started this hybrid war and that that includes uh, attacks to Moldova's institutions, destabilization of situation through protests. So it doesn't necessarily have to be uh, an, a special operation of military. Right. It can be done through other means, and that's why it's important to have a overview on, on all threats that uh, yeah. Moldova is facing and, and uh, address them uh, together. Yeah, exactly. It goes back to the earlier part of our conversation we were having that the, the threats probably towards there are threats to Moldova, but it's not you know pure military. It's more these hybrid kind of threats or destabilization protests, as you said. I think part of the intelligence that they that I, I didn't mention earlier, but part of the intelligence was that they would even dress Russian uh, soldiers in civilian clothing uh, and put them in with the protesters to to help destabilize the situation. So I think there is there is a lot of risks. Um, but let's hope that, that Moldova is managing it, and I think with the assistance of its partners uh, in in the West as well. There's one one last question I want to ask you about, and this is going back towards the um, European path of Moldova, because uh, there's another project which is running kind of in parallel with European integration, and this is the European political community, which I think was uh, Macron's um, kind of project. Uh, the first uh, summit was held in Prague last year, and the next summit is going to be in June in, in Chisinau. How important is it for Moldova to be hosting this uh, summit, and what do you think we could expect from it? So in many ways, Moldova was able to be resilient until now because of international assistance it has received. Mm. Definitely more of that uh, might be this hope that popula- the population needs. Uh, so hosting an international summit, while it won't have direct consequences on uh, the general level of life or what people can afford to buy or what's the price of, of electricity, um, is a very important internal signal. So I was saying people have this European uh, aspirations and and this summer they will be able to, to see that as a normal citizen would say something is happening. So hey. you have a summit like that hosted by your country in these conditions. Uh, that's a really, really good signal to the population. It's also about perceptions. It's not only of uh, how things are, but how people perceive uh, that Moldova is, is moving on its path. So definitely this summit will, will help a lot with this. And then it's very, very important for Moldova to build uh, alliances and to get as much input and as much assistance as possible and to continue to receive um, advice uh, on how to better implement reforms. And um, while Ukraine 
as now in, in spotlight, it's important for our other democracies not to forget the more silent battle that, that Moldova is fighting at the moment. And uh, definitely having this summit in, in Chisinau would help tell the world about the challenges that uh, Moldova is facing. And thank you so much for, for having this conversation with me, because okay. that's one step forward towards making that more available to the public and, and raising awareness of the challenges that Moldova is facing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Moldova is, I mean, this is a country we've been covering, of course, since we've started at New Eastern Europe. Uh, but for so many people, uh, you know, Moldova is really hard to even find on a map. So I think, you know, it's really important that we talk about Moldova and the challenges it faces and the importance of it, even as we said, it's a, it's a small country. Uh, it has some economic challenges, but you know, really important what's happening there, and uh, can be sort of a linchpin for for the region. So we we definitely need to pay attention what's what's going on. Is there anything else that uh, I didn't bring up, or that you would like to to talk about uh, before we before we end our conversation? I would just encourage people to read about Moldova, to look if they're interested, to look out ways to 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 be of help be that to the refugees uh, that are there or simply volunteer their time for many, many projects uh, that are currently developed in there by the civil society, by the private sector or uh, by, by the government. So uh, if you're listening to this and um, you're looking for a way to have a direct impact and bring your small contribution uh, to the world affair nowadays, consider Moldova, that's definitely a place that needs it. Very well put. Thank you so much, Anda. And thank you for taking time to talk to us about uh, the situation in Moldova. And we will, I'm sure, follow be following up with you very shortly. Thank you so much. And that was Adam's interview with Anda Bologa. Thank you very much, Adam, for conducting this interview. I was wondering if you have any immediate thoughts or reflections on the topic. Just that it was, you know, a, a very good discussion, an overall like indicator of the importance of Moldova in this region and the importance that Moldova is playing also in relation to Russia's war in Ukraine. Um, I think Anda is correct in saying that the Ukrainians are not just defending Ukrainian territory, but defending a lot of European territory. And that, that definitely goes for Moldova. Uh, but we really do need to pay attention what uh, what Russia is doing or, or Russia's, you know, uh, signals that they're sending towards Moldova. And there have been some interesting signals. The, the foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, not too long ago made a comment that he would like to see Moldova kind of next on their list of, uh, of uh, policy, Russian policy in the region. Uh, and, uh, and then we also need to keep an eye on, I think we mentioned briefly in the interview, uh, the, the protest movement that is taking place uh, and they've been organizing protests, anti-government protests for the last several months already and uh, they are slowly growing uh, and mostly organized around the Shore Party, which is uh, related to Elon Shore, who is a pro-Kremlin businessman, uh, Moldovan. He's, he was one of those who were involved in this great uh, theft, uh, this giant bank theft, which took place in 2017. Uh, he was even convicted for his role in that uh, the, the the theft of I think it was you know a, a billion dollars out of the the banking system, which just completely disappeared from Moldova. It's hard to believe such a such a you know such a such a situation could take place. 
Uh, and like, yeah, happens yeah. to the best of us, I guess. And uh, and Shor is hiding actually in in Israel for the moment, so he's not even in Moldova. But he is definitely, from what I've read and from what a lot of the uh, speculation is and what analysis say, that he is he's coordinating a lot of efforts with uh, people on the ground in Moldova and with the Kremlin, and he could easily be one of the pro uh, pro Russian. Uh, the next maybe pro-Russian guy who could try to take power in Moldova and then we could have some serious problems. Indeed. So definitely the conclusion is we need to keep an eye on Moldova. And yeah. I think our, our listeners probably also are paying attention. It's this, this kind of country about which I think a lot of people don't know much and maybe it's easier to forget about it than about, let's say, a country like Ukraine. But you can see that it really is in a way in the middle of a lot of different issues. So if something goes wrong in Moldova, this might easily have quite strong repercussions elsewhere as well. So definitely something that we will also be keeping an eye on. And I don't know if you have anything else, Adam, or shall we just move to our... Yeah, I just want to just mention that, you know, like it's just amazing how much has changed in our region over the last, you know, 10 or 10 years or so, because we've been covering Moldova since we started New Eastern Europe back in 2011. And I remember we had an issue, our, our first issue dedicated to Moldova was in 2014. And uh, the title of the of the issue was Moldova, the Star People of Europe's East. Uh, and it was at, at a time when it was really like advancing quickly on the pro-European path and being one of the leaders in the Eastern Partnership in terms of uh, European integration. And then things kind of went completely sour after this huge banking scandal, where a billion dollars just disappeared from the from from the economy. And then the the struggles that have been taking place between uh, between the pro European forces and the pro Kremlin forces, and which have led to the situation where we are today, kind of, you know, back in this mode where the government and the policies and the society are more or less uh, choosing to be on the pro-European path, but it's a very delicate situation and something that, you know, just how much has changed and how much can change, you know, in a matter of, of a year or, or a couple of years. So it will be interesting to see where we are, where Moldova will be um, and, uh, in, in, you know, in the next two or three years, we will definitely be following that as well. Well, it's wor also worth reminding ourselves that Georgia also used to be a poster child yes. of the Eastern Partnership, and yes. it was progressing very, very well. And yeah, as as we discussed in the very beginning of this episode, that has changed as well. <laughs> but let's hope that Georgia can still come back on the on a better track, as clearly is the will of. A big part of its population, because right. certainly in the population we can still see a very much pro-European, not not in the whole population, but as we discussed, I think we actually had a very interesting discussion on this with Grigol Julohidza a mm. couple of months ago. The society might be divided, but there's definitely a big group of people who are strongly pro-European, and they, you know, they they value things like freedom of the media and human rights and things yes. like that. So, let's see if their voice will eventually be heard on the political level as well. Indeed, indeed. So with that, I think we can move to our announcement section. So I can I can maybe start this time around. So as always, please do consider reaching out to us and supporting us in whatever way you can. 
one way that we particularly appreciate is via our patron page which is www.patreon.com slash talk eastern europe this is where all our benefits live so if you go on the patron page you can see different tiers they start from as little as two dollars a month and depending on which tier you choose you get different benefits such as exclusive content, access to meetups and live streams, some sweet deals for New Eastern Europe magazine, as well as in some higher tiers, you can get our gorgeous Talk Eastern Europe water bottle. So yeah, just go and check it out. And we would be super, super grateful for your support. I also want to mention uh, before we close out the episode, Aga, that uh, the latest issue of New Eastern Europe is available. It was released uh, a week or a week or a week and a half ago. And I do encourage you all to check it out. In uh, this issue, we look at different aspects of crises and how uh, the war in Ukraine has affected all of us and uh, what crises you know, it uh, has brought on or exploited and how Russia and the Kremlin also like to exploit crises. Uh, so I definitely suggest checking it out. I will put a link in the show notes. And for some of our, our patrons who are supporters, they do have uh, discounts or even free access to, to New Eastern Europe. So that's just another reason uh, to help support the podcast. Indeed. And otherwise, please get in touch with us either via our website, which is talkeasterneurope.eu or via our Facebook group, which is Talk Eastern Europe podcast. And as always, please, if you have a couple of seconds, do give us a rating on any app that you're using to listen to us. If you have more than a few seconds, you can even write us a review, which would be absolutely fabulous. But yeah, just please be in touch and tell us what you think give us your comments we love to hear from you absolutely and if you can subscribe as well on the app that you're using please subscribe because then you'll get automatic notifications of new episodes uh, or you can also visit talkeasterneurope.eu which is the official home of our podcast and sign up there for our mailing list where you will get automatic updates when a new podcast episode is available as well and last but not least we have one more special benefit for our patrons which is our traditional patron shout out and i don't actually remember which one of us was doing it the last time is it you adam yes it is your turn great then it's my pleasure this week to say hello and thank you to our patrons who enable us to do all these things that we do here on this podcast. So we are incredibly, incredibly grateful. And so I want to say hello and thank you to Daniel, Yurai, Luke, Susie, David, Daniel, Carolina, Percy, RSJ, Michael, Anais, Olaf, CB, Klaus, Plamen, Sean, Naomi, JP, Elise, Sean, Urs, Ian, Sophia, Wilhelm, David, Erika, Janos, Jason, Mark, Stephanie, and Pierre. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. What a great group of people. You've been with us for quite some time. We got to have some of you join us last week for our special recording of our interview with Maria. And we hope to do similar types of events or online uh, discussions, which are just for patrons. So please stay tuned for that as well. And with that, I think we don't have anything more for you this week. So that will be it. Thanks a lot for joining us. We'll be, we'll be with you again soon. Talk to you soon. Bye.